ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media um so excited for today's guest one of my absolute favorite people um who is now a colleague of mine at the american enterprise institute although she kind of always was it was always weird i could never quite get to the bottom of what was going on it was sort of like she was one of those agents that was sort of segunded to mi6 who was still part of our organization but <laughs> anyway it gets confusing we don't need to get into it but now you may know her from um one of the most euphonious of punctuation marks in John Podoritz's monologues at the Commentary Podcast. Christine Rosen, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. So glad to be here. So I know you cannot, by contract, you know, join in in the mockery of, of, of John Podoritz. So maybe I'll, I'll save some of that for later. I'll just sneak it in in the margins. <laughs> is, is, is Abe Greenwald a changed man now that he has entered into the ranks of, the, of matrimonial bliss? Oh, you know, Abe, Abe is just, a, he's, a, he's an old soul always. And he's just seems a happier, calmer, same old Abe, but better like Abe 2.0. No, he's very happy. We're all very happy for him too. I, I was gobsmacked when I saw his announcement on Twitter. I didn't, I had no idea anything was in the works. Um, so it's, it's very exciting. Oh, so we knew, we all kind of knew. Um, in uh -huh. fact, we helped him plot certain parts of the activities surrounding, you know, you know, feedback on engagement ideas and things like uh -huh. that. So it was all, uh -huh. we knew, and it, the, the text chain was very active at times about it. But uh, yeah, we were all really pleased. Because, I mean, if there's one thing that John Bedard screams out is romantic advice. Um, so I'm glad that John was, was in on <laughs> that be from surprised. the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's, he's really kind of a squish at heart. He has, he's, he's, he likes to see people end up together happily ever after. I'll say that. Oh, no, I believe Maybe not that. In I movies, mean, it, but in real life, yeah. <laughs> John's a big softy on the inside. I think that's fair. Um, so, um, we're going to skip over because there's going to be so much punditry about it and you got to do more punditry someplace else about it. And I want to, I want to keep my powder dry. So we're going to skip over the Fox Dominion stuff, which broke yesterday. We can say I do. I only have one. I have one bit of punditry for you on it, if you want to hear it, which is the spin that that amount of money spent on a settlement is a win for Fox is bizarre because the only time you spend that amount of money and it's a win is if you've been able to purchase a private island that you can disappear to. Like the, the idea that this is a win and is being spun as a win to me is ridiculous. So that's my that's my little tidbit. Yeah, I think the... um most obvious tell on that is that Fox will not report the amount of the settlement. And if they thought it was a huge win for them, they might report it. Right. I mean, they would actually, have. if they were right. a better news organization, they'd report it regardless of whether they thought it was a win for them, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, um, so uh, let's, let's stay away from the media stuff for the moment. So I look, you last time we had you on here and I, I do not want to put you into the let's talk about trans stuff box but the last time we had you on here we were talking about trans stuff and I, the whole bud light fiasco thing mm. um on the one hand so i i don't know if you ever get the get this problem like there are th there are, there are times when i find that the right is right about the issue and i think the underlying complaint about mulvaney what, what what's her name mulvaney dylan dylan mulvaney yeah Dylan Mulvaney, yeah. Uh, his name, whatever. Uh, their name. Like, my buddy Rich Lowry 
they're all correct on the on the bed. There's incredibly stupid of Bud Light. Incredibly, um, I, I am I am increasingly sympathetic to the argument that uh, has appeared in the pages of commentary and elsewhere that that a lot of this trans stuff, at least the public facing performative stuff, it's very hard rationally to differentiate in important ways from blackface. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you see people on our side trying to turn it into Whitaker's chambers, his chambers level uh, political importance. And I, mm. I, I'm finding it more and more difficult to calibrate my own responses given the, the way people want everything to be an 11 out of 10. Um, so mm-hmm. like, just how do you see it? Like how important do you think it is like that you think this is going to go down? And, I mean, I've seen people say they're going to send reverberations through corporate America for decades. I, I don't think so. Um, it'd be kind of good if it did, but I, you know, anyway, so like, what do you, where do you come down on it? No, I've, I've been, uh, wrestling with this in, in sort of a similar spirit. Um, I don't think the Dylan Mulvaney, uh, Bud Light commercial on its own will send reverberations through corporate America for more than until maybe next week. Um, Mm -hmm. given the news cycle, given the speed at which, you know, social media in particular has these stories, uh, appear in our feeds and then disappear immediately. But I will say this, as, as, as someone who's been studying this movement for some time now um, and whose beliefs have, about it have, have shifted quite a bit given the behavior of the more radical wing of trans activism, um, the way that they are now physically, not merely verbally, attacking people who, who question what their claims are. Um, you know, Riley Gaines, the swimmer, being the most recent example, she was giving a talk in, in California and she had to be she was basically held hostage for a little while by a group of trans activists who would not let her leave and who prevented her from speaking. And the kind of threats of violence against people who are just saying, we don't agree with you. We want to discuss whether this is, you know, some the direction the country should be heading. That's unex- totally unacceptable to me. The Dylan Mulvaney thing, though, should be seen in the broader context of how corporate America has treated this person. Um, he's a performance artist. As you say, there's there's really, it's woman face in the way that anyone mm-hmm. would clearly recognize blackface as being a kind of parody of race. He's he's a parody of womanhood. And um, as a woman, which I, I hate saying, I, I mean, I, I hate saying that as a woman, I think X, Y, Z, but I'm saying it all the time now and I have to say it because what he's doing is setting women back a century at least. This idea that that is how any rational woman would behave uh, for whether it was exercise or, you know, sitting in a bubble bath. Um, he's getting sponsorships, not just from Bud Light. He's gotten them from Nike Women's Wear. Nike, a corporation that actually canceled or or uh, stopped paying the same amount of money to a, a female athlete when she got pregnant. So that that's that's annoying. Uh, a tampon company, a women's clothing company. These these are these are corporations that should know better. And that, I think, the Bud Light thing was sort of the, the final straw for people who were tracking this. But what's, what's offensive to me is that he's also getting a lot of political attention, right? Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. uh, people sort of praising him for his bravery. There is nothing brave about what he is doing. What he is doing is a very lucrative form of performance art. And you can applaud him for, for that if you, if you think, you know, that's a good thing. But it's very offensive to women. And I know there's plenty of women who say, oh, no, we welcome him into the fold. I... He's, he's play acting at being a woman, having not been one and having only recently, you know, 
become this version of what he claims is a woman for the purpose of, I think, really cashing in. And so there's something sort of mercenary about him that I think triggers a lot of people. That said, look, it's a free country. If you don't want to buy Bud Light, don't buy Bud Light. If you think they shouldn't have him as a sponsor, fine, don't. The boycott mentality strikes me as, as both ineffective and an overreaction. Um, if you're if you're a free market conservative, you say let the market decide. We'll see. I mean, they issued uh, Anheuser Busch had to issue a sort of apology. A lot of weasel words in their apology, but still, it was like it was oh, like ChatGPT wrote that thing. I mean, really, that was bad. <laughs> it, it was really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted. No one in the communications department wanted to touch that with a ten foot pole. But yeah, so I. But look, I the, the fundamental issue here is that I think when those moments like the Bud Light commercial are released. What people are responding to isn't just that. They're responding to a deep unease and concern about the pace with which this uh, trans activists are demanding new forms of, they call them rights, but I don't want to call them rights because they already have the full rights of, of, that every American enjoys. A way of invading women-only spaces, whether that be athletics, locker rooms, bathrooms, um, prisons. We've got more and more lawsuits coming out of women-only prisons because these women are being raped by men who call themselves women so that they can get an easier uh, easier prison transfer to a women's-only prison. That's wrong. And that there's, there's all this unease. And at the same time, you've got the Biden administration saying, anyone who doesn't agree with us on expanding this definition of what it means to be a woman and on what sex means is a transphobe. You're a bigot. You're a transphobe. There's no discussion allowed. And people want to talk about this like we're talking about it. And I'm very conflicted. I, I know adult trans people. I have worked and yeah. I work and train with them. Yeah, this is and, and there's no hatred there. I don't hate trans people. You don't hate trans people. I have a lot of concern about the the speed and rapidity with which unscientifically proven uh, uh, treatments of particularly children have have grown at a pace in the U.S. which which at just the moment when institutions, um, health institutions, medical institutions, and in other countries are saying, "Whoa, whoa, we have to slow down. We we don't have enough evidence that this is helpful." And at the same time that we're smack dab in the middle of a pretty big mental health crisis in this country, and we do know from evidence that people who have gender dysphoria have a lot of comorbidities in the forms of depression, anxiety, and whatnot. So there are actually a lot of things to discuss here, and caution is called for. But people who call for caution are called transphobic. Just it ends the discussion immediately, and that concerns me. Yeah, I mean, it's two points. One, on on the blackface thing, I think... It occurs to me that the different or woman face thing, I guess the difference, which I hadn't really thought about before, is that both the sort of horrible thing about blackface and the defense of blackface in a certain weird way is that when you do blackface, which I do not condone, right? But uh, is that it's a joke, right? There's a sardonic kind of like parodic kind of attitude about it. You're not actually saying I am now a black person unless you're, you know, Rachel Dolezal, right? You're just simply saying, uh, you're you're doing a caricature of black people, and usually it was um, most often it was a racist one. So that's what's offensive about it. The difference between that and what what Mulvaney is doing is that it's you know Milton Berle dressed up like a woman all the time, but that was the point. That was actually right. a, a better analogy towards blackface, right? Because it was also a joke, right? And it was like, look at this big lunky dude pretending to be a woman. Ha ha ha! Isn't that funny? The, right. the difference here is that it's serious, right? And so like, that's a completely mm-hmm. different cultural signal. Like we're all supposed to be in on it and it's not, and we're not supposed to be in on a joke. We're supposed to be in on some other thing about this, which 
I think disturbs people. But then the, the other, the other point, which I think is worth dwelling on for just two seconds is this point you make that you made in passing, um, about how other countries that we, like if we were talking about healthcare, the left would all say, see how more enlightened they are, <laughs> right? If we were talking about gun policy, see how much more enlightened they are. But when it comes to this issue, it's just dead silence. Um, you know, the econ- for those who want to see it uh, or are interested in this, The Economist did a very good piece where they did a survey of, of uh, Finland, Sweden, Sweden, France. Finland, UK, UK yeah. too. And, and yeah. they're all like, whoa, 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 slow your roll. This is, you know, don't do this mm-hmm. to kids quite yet. Did you see, I assume you saw this, this Jeremy Peters, Adam Nagorny piece in the New York Times um, uh, over the weekend where it's so exhausting. They're like, how conservatives turn the trans issue into a culture war issue. And they literally start, as so often happens, it's like the gas stove thing. They start with a conservative reaction to something rather than the exactly. actual thing, right? Right. And I think that's the problem is the, 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 the political class, progressive political class, wants this to be a useful issue to call people bigots rather than actually talk about the things that they claim to care about, like the science. Yes. No, that that piece was deeply frustrating, although completely predictable. If you're a conservative, you've seen this you've seen this narrative constructed over a great many things um, about whether it's crime, gas stoves or, or uh, trans rights. It's it's always how conservatives react and how we pounce. Um, I, I will say it's it's striking to me and, and a real difference to uh, compared to, say, countries like the UK. What one group has been weirdly silent given the very deep misogyny that that exists in the trans, it's sort of the extreme versions of the trans movement, the kind of hatred that, you know, I will give you a comparison. Um, some of the signs that are brought to these protests say things like, suck my D, although spelled out. I mean, these are, these are, these are trans women who are telling women who, biological women, uh, that they should suck their like mm-hmm. th- this is this is appalling, right? Um, it used to just uh, feminists have been really quiet in this country about the trans rights movement, right? We don't see them saying much at all, whether it's through fear of cancellation, fear of being seen as bigoted. In the UK, the canary in the coal mine for many of these issues were the sort of radical British lesbians. They saw very early on this effort by trans women to infiltrate female-only spaces in ways that they absolutely rejected. They're like, you cannot work. If you're, a, if you're an intact male, you don't get to work in a women's rape crisis center. That's just not a good idea because these right. women have been traumatized in a unique way by men and you are still an intact male. And the fact that they even had to raise that issue, uh, you know, there were lawsuits over this in some countries and Canada had a lawsuit about this. So they were speaking out because they also felt like their unique identity as lesbians was being challenged. They were being called transphobic if they were not sexually attracted to the opposite sex, which is what someone who has not had the surgery is to a lesbian. Like they look at that trans woman, they're like, well, you're not really a woman. I, I'm not feeling that attraction. That's a legitimate feeling. And I think that, uh, and, and there've been Andrew Sullivan and others in the gay male community have spoken out about this as well. In this country, there's there's not that con- that conversation is really not happening among feminist groups, and that strikes me as interesting. And I will be very curious to watch over the course of the next you know few months as the Biden administration works to expand what Title IX means, 
where the feminist groups actually on the record place themselves in this debate. Because I think it's very difficult for them to argue that they care about, for example, women's rights to equal access in college sports when you, and they cannot say that and then praise a, a very low ranked um, previously male guy who went through male puberty beating every single woman in a swimming competition. I mean, that, and that's where I think whether the narrative will triumph over what we see with our own eyes. I don't think anyone watches those races. A race that a man, someone who went through male puberty, calls himself a woman, but is still an intact male, won by something like, what, 40, 50 seconds? That's a huge amount of time. Yeah, yeah. It's clear there's a physical advantage there. It's clear it's unfair. It's why we have uh, different sports. And it always strikes me, like, why hasn't anyone argued if gender is a spectrum or binary, right, non-binary is a thing, then why can't sports be non-binary? Have a league for trans people. Let them compete against each other and not upend the competition that, that women should be able to have with each other or men should have with each other. Um, why isn't that an option? That's not even discussed. That, that should be an option if you want to talk about opportunity and fairness. So I just find it interesting that the feminists have not, I, I can't think of a single prominent feminist in this country who's gone on the record saying much, perhaps I'm wrong, and I, I'm happy to stand corrected if I am, but where's the National Organization for Women or the National Women's Law Center? Where, where are these folks on this issue? Yeah, it, it's it, the Title IX stuff is particularly perplexing to me because, well, in part because, as you know, my wife was writing about Title IX 20 years ago, 20, more than 20 years ago now, um, about Title IX and sports, and and let's just say she has opinions, um, and um, uh, and I think that one of the tragic things here, or one of the things I think a lot of people aren't appreciating about why this rankles in, because like the actual numbers are are still very small, and people say, oh, you're talking about you know a handful yes. of cases, and that's all fine, that's a fair thing to point out, you know, um. We should know that it's not, we shouldn't catastrophize the whole thing. At the same time, there are two things going on that I think don't get enough attention. One is this culture's attitude towards sports is more meritocratic and egalitarian than its attitude towards anything else except maybe the army or the military. And maybe not even that, right? We mm -hmm. just think the best athletes should win and the competition should be fair. And it's just, it's so deep, I think as a human thing, but also as an American thing. And then the other part of it is, is that, and I, you know, and I, I watched this in real time watching, you know, you know, the debate about the, the first wave debate about Title IX unfold because, you know, the fair Jessica was so into it was, um, this country took, spent an enormous amount of time and effort convincing, especially dads to care as much about their daughter's sports as their son's. Mm-hmm. And, and it worked. And it was one of these great sort of, you know, small P progressive kind of things that um, I think made the country better. It was a real step for feminist equality in a, in a meaningful sense. It was good for America. You know, there were some downsides to it too, but, you know, uh, net gain culturally for the country. And you now see men at, you know, dads who are just as much of a jackass at their girls' sports games <laughs> as their sons, <laughs> which is progress, right? And then all of a sudden you tell them... That, that is, in a way. Yeah, and now you tell them, oh, by the way, boys now get to compete against your girls and your girls are not going to get a trophy. And that that combined thing of unfairness as sport as sports as meritocracy and like get having your kid getting the short end of the stick, I think arouses a certain kind of 
rage that a lot of people in elite America don't quite understand properly. No, that's it's such a good point, because I think what the the real difference between that moment in 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 terms of a cultural shift is how long it took. It took time, mm-hmm. right? These these cultural yeah. changes take time. There's pushback, there's resistance, but and there's also overkill on the part of those trying to advance the cause. What strikes me about a lot of the the movement in, into women's sports by trans activists is how fast and forceful they're trying to make that transition. And they aren't trying to persuade. There is no persuasion here. It is just you're with us or you're a transphobe. And I feel like that's kind of... Um, an example of a lot of debates in, in our culture right now where conservatives are like, whoa, 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 let's just hold on here and then really let's look at all the factors in play and let's really make sure that we want to completely discard what's been going pretty well so far in order to, you know, scrap it and start anew. Um, that caution, that sort of sense of, of caution has with it a respect for what came before, kind of a respect for it's much easier to tear down than it is to build. We know that. We know that from human history. So if you're going to tear something down, you better make a pretty good argument that most people can get on board with. There is just, I don't see any of that on on anytime you have a radical progressive program. I don't see that effort to persuade. In fact, I see the opposite. I see people trying to even shut down the conversation um, you know, I, I'm very concerned about the shift in young people's views of, of free speech um, and about, about the kind of self-censorship that goes on, particularly related to these issues. It's, it's difficult. I mean, I'll give you an example. I had, I had to write an email to my son's middle school because I had a question about what the school's policy was when they were in middle school, when a girl who they'd known since kindergarten decided she was a boy and was hanging out in the boys' locker room for, before gym and kind of staring at everybody. And they were like, eh, it's weird, but whatever, we'll just turn. I mean, they didn't think it was that big a deal. I just wanted to know what the policy was. And I had spoken to other parents who also were like, I don't know, this doesn't seem good. And parents of daughters in particular were like, if, if it's a man in the girls locker room, I really would have concerns. None of them would wanted to write that note. I mean, I sent my email and I didn't get much of a response, but like nobody wants to, nobody wants to do that. And I, the fear, the, the fear of even having the debate is, is bad. So I feel like we can't sit we can't sit on the sidelines anymore. That's where, that's where I think actually these, these calls for boycotts are actually kind of a keyboard warrior type easy thing to do. It's like, well, I won't drink Bud Light anymore. Okay, well, fine. But what are you actually doing to shift the policy debate? Because the policy debate is where all of this is going to have the trickle down effect, just like it did for women's sports with Title IX. The, the, the casualties of that shift in culture were men's wrestling teams at colleges, men's diving teams, swim teams, you know, Olympic type sports that had very small rosters for men. And Jessica did such amazing work, sort of constantly reminding people, okay, these, these social changes do have costs and they, the costs are actually borne by people. Just like Riley Gaines lost a championship trophy. There, this is, this is, there are only so many pieces in a pie when you're in any sort of competition and someone's going to get it and someone isn't. And what frustrates me is seeing the principle of fairness being undermined, even if, as you say, right now, it's still a smaller number of people. However, if you're a high school or college level coach of women's teams, what incentive would you have not to have as many trans women athletes on your team as possible? You will absolutely slaughter the competition. You just know it. I mean, so that's another thing is that right now we're talking about a handful of people, but there's no reason to, to believe that that wouldn't expand. Um, just surely because they will win. They will beat the women. They will beat the women in competition more often than not. No, I think that's, I mean, it's, you're, you're right. It's like, you know, transgender is the new uh, ringer 
little league player from the Dominican Republic, right? You know, you're just like, let's get, we got to get a guy in here. <laughs> Who says he's, he's 13, yeah. but he's actually 30. I think he's 30, but we're, we're saying his birth certificate says 13. <laughs> okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation and it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The thing I sort of struggle with is even if you concede a lot of the ground to the trans argument, to me, there's nothing like sort of wildly illegitimate in saying, okay, you know, it's tragic that you were born in the wrong body. Um, and that's a shame. We're going to do what we can to help you fix it and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, just for the sake of argument, and we're going to give you gender affirming care and you always kind of say, but, you know, one of the downsides of this is that you won't be allowed to play high school and college sports. And um, like of the tragedies in life, being born in the wrong, being wrong with the wrong sex organs compared to not being able to play, not being able to compete in track and field seems to me the first one is much worse, right? And we can have sympathy for the first one, but also say there are consequences that are out of our hands for the second one, you know, that, which bring you to the second one. It's sort of like, look, I mean, I'm not trying to compare, everything gets fraught when you try to do comparisons, but like, you know, if you were born without a functioning right leg, you know, 
there are just certain costs that come with that. And society will do everything that is reasonable it can do and compassionate to do to, to lessen those costs. But there's just some, some options that really aren't going to be available to you. Um, and we as a society just have a hard time telling people that. We seem to think that like, and it's amazing how I'll, when, I, when I'll engage with people on Twitter about this, like this idea of inclusion being more important than fairness is the way people phrase it. It's like, I just think inclusion's mm-hmm. more important than fairness. And it's like, well, why? Mm-hmm. I mean, what are your priors? What is, what is, what is the actual argument for that? And it's, instead it just go, it goes by assertion rather than like, no, let's have a conversation about this. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to know, like, I'm open to the idea that inclusion is more important than fairness. And, it, and I could probably come up with a bunch of scenarios about like blacks and country clubs or Jews, you know, wherever, you know, that where inclusion was more important than fairness, you know, but like, Define your terms and explain it to me. And, and everyone wants to just sort of take it at face value that like they're right because they've, they've encanted these magical phrases. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there's also a difference between accommodation, like accommodating someone. Like if you, you know, we have the ADA, that took a battle, that took a battle to like, right. look, you got you to gotta retrofit buildings and put in ramps and people in wheelchairs need to be have, have this accommodation society. Yes, there's a cost. There's a financial cost, but it's worth it. That cost is worth it because we are expanding opportunity and, and accessibility for a group of people through no fault of their own who ended up in, in, in this condition. But I feel like the, the trans argument goes one step. They don't want accommodation, right? It's not accommodation. It's you have to change everything about the integrity of this sport, for example, or the integrity of a safe space. I'm, I'm far less concerned about sports than I am about like domestic crisis shelters, women's prisons, right. places where actually women's, women's real bodily security is at risk from an intact male and where they might have been already, you know, traumatized in their, in, in, by previous, uh, uh, violence in their lives. So like that, that to me is where it's like, we do not accommodate this here. You can accommodate it all these other places. And and like it, most of the trans people I know, they go about their lives. Nobody like, it's just not an issue, but they are adults. And the other thing that concerns me, and, and I, I assume you'll share with me that the, the sort of concern about this as well, is that if you look historically at when societies want to start meddling with, um, Certainly with fertility, people's ability to reproduce, people's ability to control their own bodies. And, and you see a kind of an aggressive push on very feeble evidence for a social cause. I, that, that hits all of my alarm bells. And so when you think about the trans uh, treating kids, because their long-term cost isn't just that they don't get to play sports if, if we had these rules in place, is that they will never have children. They will have long-term health problems that are, that are only beginning to be studied, but that are severe. And we don't hear those stories much either because that doesn't fit a narrative of oh, more openness, more opportunity, more inclusion. Those don't fit the narrative, but those stories exist. Those people exist. They have suffered from the so-called affirming care that they have already received. So that concerns me a lot. And I think the argument does need to be very cleanly divided between what we're talking about when we're talking about children and what we're talking about when we're talking about adults because those are two different. And then the college sports stuff kind of falls a little in the middle, but but that's a, that's also a conversation. And I, again, I, I'm frustrated that you can't have any of those conversations with any of those distinctions without being called a bigot. And just so listeners know, um, one of the, I first got to know Christine a long time ago when I discovered that she had written, I believe it was her PhD dissertation, which became a book called Preaching Eugenics, mm-hmm. um, that she actually knows about a good deal about previous eras where... <laughs> People got kind of worked up about uh, fertility rates and uh, uh, and and 
and uh, the aesthetic appeal of the demographic organization of society, I think, is the most euphemistic way I can put it. Um, I just, <laughs> well but let's, yeah, so let's let's move on to, because uh, I, I said I didn't want to keep you in the slot and then we kept you in the slot, so I, I feel bad about that. Um, but, That's right, there's um, a lot to talk about there, but yeah. But there I mean, is, you know, there is, and it's 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 such it's a fraught, annoying, I mean, I, I don't, the, and it, we still didn't solve my initial crisis, which is like, how, like, and this is a broader problem on the right these days is that there are a lot of people who actually don't want to have good faith conversations about anything, right? And that's absolutely, yes, yes. They just want to like own the libs. They just want to catastrophize about things. Like I'm, I like, I can't remember which one of these young guy, you know, sort of Knowles, Walsh, I don't, I can't remember. One of them was talking about how we just have to eradicate transgenderism and all that kind of stuff. And like, I don't know what they mean by that. I don't want to know what they mean by that. It's not a thing that we can do. Um, uh, you know, we can push back on social fads and, 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 and keep people from abusing people. But anyway, like there are people who want to make who I agree with on some top line things, but who want to make the larger, who want to make the larger conversation uglier and worse, not better. And so Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to talk about without sounding or being confused for one of them, which I don't want to be. Um, But it's just hard. Can I, that I want to add to that because this is really important. Um, Conservatives are, are supposed to be people who argue from a position of tradition and reason and virtue. And we should have compassion when we are talking about this anything related to how human beings feel they can flourish as human beings. So I might disagree with radical trans activists and their demands, but that's still a human being on the other side of that argument. And I will treat that person with compassion and respect, even if they don't treat me that way. And they don't. I've been called turf. I've been called all kinds. I've gotten nasty emails, you know, all, all kinds of stuff for, for having written fairly, you know, middle of the road stuff about this, in my opinion. But that hatefulness that sort of animosity, that is completely unhelpful because it ha- it's a, it, and it's not conservative. I, I reject that that's a conservative view at all because I don't think that's how genuine conservatives would argue in any case. You can be absolutely passionate in your defense of, as I am in this case, women's uh, right to have safe sex-only spaces, whether that's in athletics or prisons or women's shelters. That is our right. We have the right to that sense of safety and we have fought for that right for a very long time. But I will not demonize my opponents, even though they might demonize me. And that's actually something where, whether it's social media, whether it's just the sort of toxic political environment and the moment we happen to be in, we need to push back on that. I'm very glad to hear you say that because it is, it, and we'll still be, we'll still be lumped in with all of them. You know, yeah, there's like, sure. if you're, an, you're, you're either, an, you're either pro-trans or anti-trans, there's no, there's no moderation. But I do think we should really strive to be respectful in how we discuss these issues because that's important. That's important. We have to see each other. All it, we're all in this together as Americans, and so solving these problems requires seeing each other as as if not on the same side of an argument, at least all together on the same team as Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's like I, I'm very much on your side of the argument when it comes to like this sort of non-binary talk, but when it comes to ideology, I'm increasingly non-binary. I think that there's something about the way our brains <laughs> are wired that if if my side's for it, the other side has to be against it and vice versa, and that there's no third way to think about something. Um, and uh, 
you know, you're already seeing people say, well, if Trump's the nominee, I'll have no choice. I'll have to vote for him, you know, because what else are you going to do? And like that sort of thinking. Um, and, and again, I get it as a voting thing. I mean, I, I'm not going to do that, but I get it. But there's this larger sort of like, well, if I'm voting for somebody, then I have to say that I think they're great. And that's the problem I have with the non-binary stuff, with the binary thinking kind of thing is this idea that like, mm -hmm. um, there's, you cannot be openly cynical about things. You have to be secretly cynical and publicly all in on your cynicism. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a very weird sort right. of dynamic. Well, revealed. Okay, I know we weren't going to talk about the Dominion case, but that was actually uh -huh. revealed. Like Tucker Carlson was trash talking Trump in in private emails, which were revealed during the course of this of discovery of this case. I mean, and that that's that actually breeds a, an unhealthy cynicism, I think, in 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 people's ability to trust what what the media they watch uh, tells them about political figures versus the healthy cynicism of like, well, you know, he's a politician. Here's what he's saying. I don't always agree with it, but we're going to present that. That is, we need healthy cynicism when it comes to politics. That's a useful thing to have. But the deep-rooted, cynical, I'm going to perform one way and actually behave another in private, that's, that's not great. We'll keep our powder dry on, on all that. So um, you, over at Commentary, um, uh, much to my chagrin, you guys are overly giving Mark Halperin the credit for this when frequent remnant guest and, and passionate remnant listener A.B. Stoddard has been on this bandwagon for about a year that Biden will not run uh, in 2024. I'm trying to just steer us towards rank punditry. Um, and I am increasingly sympathetic to this point of view as well. Um, uh, in fact, if you were going to give me good odds, you know, so I, I don't know how much gambling you do. You don't seem, I don't, I've never seen you at the track. I, I have a, I have a poker game with my neighbors, but we bet in like quarters. So that's, oh, okay. that's the extent of it. So, you know, there are like, in, in football betting, there's like a parlay. I mean, there's lots of things there's a parlay, but like in mm -hmm. horse, horse racing, if you, the trifecta, which is betting correctly on three races, uh, pays off massively because it's a multiple of odds, right? You have to have, you have to beat the odds in three races. And so doing that is itself, uh, a, a long shot kind of thing. I, if you gave me sort of good trifecta kind of odds, I would bet at this point that Biden, Trump, and DeSantis are not the nominees of their parties. Ah, uh, interesting. I like I like this uh, hypothetical. Yeah, yeah well, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be that be that be a nice world? Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. I'm just like like you make some bets. If you're willing to put a risk a little capital, if the pay if the expected payoff is high enough, it's a smart bet, right? And so, like right now, if you give mm -hmm. me good odds, I think there's a twenty percent chance. Certainly, I think there's a good chance DeSantis is not the nominee. I think there's a there's a reasonable chance chance Trump is not the nominee, and I and I don't think it's an impossibility that Biden's not the nominee. Um, so where do you come down on Biden right now? And we maybe we'll just go through all three. Sure. Um, I'm actually, I, I, I've, having watched him in public, just in, even in recent months, uh, compared even to the very beginning of his term in office, uh, I, there's no way to watch him. And again, I don't say this with any sort of glee. There's no way to watch him in public without worrying about how uh, his competence physically 
not even cognitively. I can't assess his cognitive. Uh, you know, I, I, that's that. Those are tests that neurosurgeons make, uh, neuroscientists make. I, I can't do that, but I can look at just the way he walks, his stiffness, his confusion, um, the fact that he's not let out in public all that much without a lot of handling. Um, his lack of accessibility, which of course the White House press corps has completely rolled over and accepted as completely normal, of course, because he's a Democrat, but he's not normal. He is he is the least available president who spends the least time in the White House, who spends a lot of time in, in at his beach house in Delaware. And I think all of that speaks to a kind of fatigue that happens regularly for him at his age, whether that's cognitive again, I don't know. The garbled speech, uh, the the when he gets stuck, he turns to telling personal stories out of nowhere, personal anecdotes, which are also often kind of not the same version of what he told before. All of this suggests someone who's really not at the top of his game any longer. Now, that's what the American people elected with some suspicion that that was the case, although they didn't see it often, right? They saw he was in the basement for most of that election and that served him well. He really wasn't out front and center day after day doing the hard work of that of that kind of campaign because of the pandemic. He would have to do that this time. And I, I just don't see him being able to do that. However, he's a deeply stubborn and egotistical human being who's got a lot of power right now. Why would he give that up? So there's, there's that. He also has a lot of people around him and a whole infrastructure in the Democratic Party that would be happy to just have him sit there as a figurehead while, you know, other people kind of help him run the country. So I personally don't think he's up to the job, but I, I don't think that necessarily means the Democrats dumping him would be really hard because they don't really like Kamala either. And they don't, their alternative is what, Gavin Newsom? I mean, who's who's going to step to fill that void? On the Republican side, I think it's a lot more, uh, it's really fascinating because this whole question of who's going to get the nomination versus who could win the general election. There are so many more independent voters now. There are so many people who are sick to death of both parties Whoever gets that nomination has to be someone who speaks to those people too, even in a primary. And I'm not, I, I think those people exist on the Republican side. I don't know who it could be at this point. Maybe it's Tim Scott, maybe it's Nikki Haley. I don't know. So far, I haven't seen anyone clearly have that line, but DeSantis is taking a lot of hits. Look, I'm a Floridian born and raised. There's a lot I like about DeSantis. My, my family and friends who are still there, even Democrats in Florida, like some of them like DeSantis. I'm, I'm growing concerned with his strategy with regard to the culture war. I'm, I'm growing concerned with his understanding of how the state's power should be used uh, against one's political enemies. That worries me a little bit. Um, so yeah, I could see him flaming out. He's not even declared yet. So we'll see. He has a lot of money. He has a big war chest. He comes from a big state. Um, I wouldn't count him out entirely. Um, I would love to count Trump out too, but I... I I don't know. I mean, he's he could get indicted on further charges. I would love it if none of the, I mean, maybe with, with a caveat about I'm not so sure yet on DeSantis, I would say I would love neither Biden nor Trump to be the nominees. That would be ideal. And I think the vast majority of people in this country would agree with that, right? They're like middle of the road and they're sick to death of both parties. I just don't know who would fill the void. If I could pick, if I had to pick among those three to be the next president of the United States, I'd probably pick DeSantis, not necessarily with glee, but, um, mm -hmm. but he'd be like, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't want Trump. I don't want Biden. Um, so it's like by elimination, I think the, the part of the problem, it's it, part of the problem with DeSantis right now is that the stuff he's doing in Florida, people are starting to suspect that he would want to do that with, um, uh, the federal government. 
while at the same time he's making this argument about states' rights, federalism, local control, governors can do things, blah, 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 blah. And he hasn't explained the disconnect there, right? He hasn't explained how, right. like, um, he would not be the governor of the United States of America the way he's the governor of, of Florida. Um, um, I also just think that more just in, get, diving deeper into the purely rank punditry, um, he's starting to feel like Ted Cruz 2.0. That his strategy is, Ooh, is to, yeah, well, I mean, I'll look, I mean, look, I mean, again, I think he's, he's got more accomplishments than Ted does, right? I mean, because he's a governor and governors by definition are going to have actual accomplishments, right? Um, but um, I just mean in terms of his presidential strategy, it's, it's mm, sort of like mm-hmm. win over this segment of the Republican electorate that you can almost guarantee you'll come in second in a presidential primary. And it's like, okay, great. Good right. for you. But like, what is, you know, and, right. um, and, you know, at least we think that DeSantis sort of understood this, this issue. Cause when he first became governor, he did all sorts of things that sort of won over moderate, you know, the, the environmental stuff that he did um, for the Everglades mm-hmm. and whatnot. And he seems to have forgotten that part of it. And it may be that he hasn't forgotten that. It's just the problem is, is that he thinks you can't get the nomination without being Ted Cruz 2.0. And that just makes you seem less capable of, of, of winning in a general election for now. And he'll figure he'll fix that problem later. No, I think I think that's a good point. I think he is in a weird way. He's testing a theory that the electorate will will be the decisive uh, proof of about whether we are whether the Republican Party post Trump is fundamentally different for the next you know twenty years or was it a blip? I mean, this is still I I still happen to think it's up for grabs. There are people who are like, nope, Trump destroyed it. Everybody's crazy. You can't you, you can't ever vote Republican again. You should only vote for Democrats. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. I think there are a lot of people who unfortunately kept their heads down during the Trump years who probably should have spoken out but didn't um, and are now sort of seeing the error of their ways. But he I also think he's made a mistake, which is a mistake that that certainly a lot of a lot of democratic politicians on the left have made biden made it continues to make it which is to speak to their twitter bubble and i and and desantis seems to both allow people to speak for him you know kind of segments of the right that that profit off of a kind of extremely hostile culture war rhetoric all the time all the time you know there's there's no nuance it's just and it's very us versus them and he's kind of letting them set a tone for his uh, accomplishments that won't even mention the Everglades, for example, but loves to talk about, you know, uh, I don't know, Disney and trans stuff. And look, we've been talking about trans stuff. But they don't talk about it the way we talk about it. There's there's a way in which I think maybe he feels reaching those people is going to get him the Trump voter, but I'm not sure those are the same groups either. Um, there's a kind of entrepreneurial uh, social media right winger out there. There's It's a type it, and and they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily plugged in uh, to Trump voters in the Midwest, for example, or to people who is actually polling data shows us they're still concerned about inflation, about about all the typical issues that voters tend to be concerned about, crime, inflation, um, education, those sorts of things. So I, what I would hope to see him do is is kind of steal a little more from the Glenn Youngkin playbook when, when Youngkin ran his campaign for governor of Virginia, where he, he sort of did take an issue 
right out from underneath the Democrats' nose when it comes to education. And he did it through a very savvy combination of using the power, saying, I'm going to use the power of the state to to do these things, but also I'm going to listen to what the parents themselves are concerned about and let them lobby their school boards and, and you know, send a message. He, I, I really think the balance he struck there when he was a candidate is is certainly the reason he won. DeSantis needs to speak more to those voters, I think, rather than kind of getting wins among the right-wing Twitterati. Uh, it just strikes me that he's really gone too far in that other direction. And again, he's got to do a little of both if you're a politician. But I feel like a, a lot of the issues that people are saying, people on the left will say, oh, he's just playing to Trump voters. I'm like, I'm not sure that's what Trump voters care about. Like, that's not, th- those aren't their issues either. Yeah, I mean, it, this is something that I think a lot of people misunderstood about the history of the Republican nominating process, which is that when we were growing up, up until fairly recently, you know, Republicans had these sort of, uh, you know, there was the old saw, uh, Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall in love, right? That was the whole thing, right? And so, yeah. like, Republicans mm-hmm. picked the guy whose turn it was. You know, Dole came in second um, in 92, so right. he gets his turn in 96. And H.W. Bush was was Reagan's guy who came in second. He was the vice president, so he's his, his turn. Blah, 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 blah. Romney, 2012, 2016, you know, that, or 20, 2008, 2016. People know what I'm talking about. Words, they don't come easy. Um, so, but like, I think what people don't get is that the mainstream guy whose turn it was ran, you know, tried to solidify support in the base Mm -hmm. to run the next time. And they they weren't looking to be the base candidate. What they were looking to do is line up enough support of the base that when you added it, with the moderates, the middles, the the party traditionalists, the regulars, all those kinds of people, gave you a majority for the primaries. And then starting in around 2012, because partly the nature of the parties changed, we got this dynamic where, no, 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 the only way to get the nomination is to win the hardcore ideological mm-hmm. activist base. And it seems to me there's still a strategy to say, hey, look, all you normals out there who want to win next time, um, line up behind me and then try to get 20%, 25% of like the hardcore MAGA, MAGA adjacent people. And that's a winning coalition. But instead, everyone's sort of, it's sort of like in 2016, it was so weird how, or in 2016, so Bernie Sanders comes in, comes really close. So then in 2020, everyone's like, well, the guy who came really close was a socialist. Let's all fight for the socialist lane of the Democratic Party. <laughs> rather right. than like the lane of the party that, that actually won the nomination. And that's why Biden right. could do exactly. it. And, um, and so there's just this weird misreading of, of the political imperatives. And I, 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 so I, I agree with you that the Republican party is kind of still up for grabs, but you need someone to want to grab it. And I, I just don't see that. Well, DeSantis was doing that. That's what's so intriguing about his shift over the last few months Right after he won re-election by this overwhelming, you know, resounding victory, he was doing some of that. He was talking about being a winner. And he was that was obviously a a total shot across the bow to the fact that Trump's handpicked candidates had lost across the board. So him saying that and like, I'm not going to waste my time. You know, people are losing. We want to win. This is what we're here to do. We're politicians. We're supposed to win elections. And I liked that. I liked that message because what it allowed for is exactly what you're describing, which is 
you know, I think people have long underestimated because of the sort of mainstream media rhetoric about a vast right wing conspiracy and all this having kind of really taken root and, and stayed. The idea that the Republicans always all got along and, and are in lockstep and super disciplined is ridiculous. There's always been like many factions fighting just, I mean, there are on the Democratic side as well. But they used to be, as you say, a little bit more disciplined when it came to actually winning elections. And, and Trump blew that up. I think because even he was surprised he won that election. And what that told the world is, wait a minute, all these old rules don't apply. So I would love to hear DeSantis go back to telling the voters, both the Republican Party base and the growing number of independents, why what he would do if he won an election. And as you said earlier, how what a governor brings to the table is a certain kind of experience, which I think right now this country does need. Like, you, mm-hmm. We really need a governor's experience. I would love to see a governor in the White House next, not a career politician or a senator like like uh, Biden. Um, but he's got to talk about what his view of state power is because Trump didn't. Trump's view of state power was, "I am the state. <laughs> Whatever right. I say goes." And and that is not a healthy view of of a democracy uh, for your leader of a democracy to have. So he needs to articulate that, and he hasn't really done that. Now again, he hasn't declared. Maybe once he declares, that'll become clear. But trying to have it both ways because at some point people say, oh, you, he has to go after Trump. He has to go after Trump. Not necessarily. He just has to have a very clear, well-articulated, powerful vision that's a contrast to the chaos of Trump. Yeah, and he has to be, I mean, he's going to have to fake it, but he's going to have to be a more likable personality. Um, and that's fine. People fake that all the time. Um, all right, so one, one last... That's what consultants are for. One one last uh, gear change. So you have kind of uh, journalistically a masochistic beat. You hate social media, but you cover it. If that's too glib, I apologize and you can correct me. No, no, that's a pretty good description. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Um, as someone who's critical of the phenomenon of social media, but also critical of the way Twitter was run pre-Musk, I'm just kind of curious. What do you think of Musk's stewardship so far? I mean, this morning I had to go into my uh, user agreement and acknowledge that they've changed the name of the company to, was it X? And I, you, you, I don't think, you don't, you don't tweet, but you do lurk, I believe. I, do, I don't have a Twitter account, although if I ever got one, I would name it Social Media Masochist. That would be the description. Okay. Um, no, I don't. I mean, but I go, whoever publicly, I, I will sometimes go and look and see what people are saying. Yes, yeah. definitely so, lurk, so what do you not th- with an account. So with that critical distance, without having sullied yourself by wallowing in the mud that is Twitter the way I do. Uh, What do you think about how he's done and what's your explanation for, for how he's doing it or why he's doing it? So I will say as someone who doesn't use Twitter as a user, um, and not because I'm, I'm, I, I can't take moral high ground on that. Honestly, the main reason I didn't use it, same reason I, when, it, when Facebook came out, I'm like, that'll waste my time. And when Twitter came out, I'm like, that'll get me fired. Those were <laughs> literally my initial instincts. <laughs> so that it's not, it's not some, some high moral crusade. Um, but I will say that I think as a matter of shaking things up in terms of free speech, I love what Musk has done. I loved all the Twitter file stuff. I know that there's a lot of controversy over how much of that is you know, a true conspiracy between the state and social media platforms and whatnot. But what he did is is throw a little sunlight on a process that was entirely opaque to people, which they didn't realize until he came along they needed 
to be aware of. And by that, I mean, there was this assumption that just, oh, it's the algorithms. It's all so neutral. It's all just trying to get you to look at the... No, it really isn't neutral. There are human beings making decisions. And as we now know from some of the Twitter files stuff, human beings with very strong partisan leanings making decisions to actively censor the views they didn't like. So for that alone, I think it's worth it. On the technical side, I don't know if he's actually... Um, made the site worse as uh, to use as a Twitter user because I'm not one. But I have heard complaints about that. I've heard complaints about, you know, the the charging money for the check marks and all that. So people are angry. To which I say, I mean, it is it's a capitalist country. I mean, it's it was a free service and now someone else bought it and they want to make some money off of it in a different way. You might have to pay. I mean. Uh, you know, my Netflix subscription goes up every year and I kind of shrug and say, okay, but you know, Cobra Kai. So I, you know, I re-up, but it's not, it's, it's not, um, I, I, I like that he's, the transparency he's brought to just that process alone of how they, how they negotiated content on the site. And particularly in the wake of everything that came out after COVID about, you know, and the Hunter Biden laptop story, these were all things where you did see a kind of elite technocratic group making decisions that had an impact on the entire country. And they did that through a behind a screen of opacity that they assumed would never be unfurled, right? So a lot of the response to the Twitter files was an angry sort of, how dare you question our judgment? We are supposed to be making these decisions on your behalf and we know better. And I, that always annoys me that we know better. Musk, I think, is annoying in other ways, but he doesn't he doesn't have that attitude. And I think the fact that he's he's because Twitter in particular was the platform of choice for media folks, that was a very important shakeup. So I like him just for that. Now I'm happy to to I mean, he's obviously very mercurial and and as a manager, he, he would strike me as the world's worst manager. But again, these are just sort of vague impressions, not not based on on uh, individual experience. What do you think? Do you like it better now, or is it more difficult? No, I, I generally, I mean, I think there are, there are technological improvements that he's made that I think are better um, on net. I like the two factor verification. Mm-hmm. I, I, I resented having to pay mm-hmm. for the two factor verification, but I take the point. You know, that yeah, but you, now you can't get hacked as easily. So yeah, yeah, but but you pay for things in life, so like that you like, and so that that part of I think is fine. The character limit thing, whatever. Um, um, I will say my user, my personal user experience is worse. Because first of all, the the switch to like the only way you're verified is if you paid for it uh, means that some of the worst people on Twitter are now in my replies that I used to not have in my replies. Uh, and people are basically okay. paying for the opportunity to call me a kike. Mm-hmm. And they're paying for the opportunity to have it be more likely that I will see it. Right. I don't find, and also like, and this may sound smug and, you know, an elitist and all that kind of stuff. But there was actual value to me to hear from the pre-Musk verified people, right? Because the pre-Musk verified people were other journalists, you know, other, you know, politicians and that kind of stuff. And as much as the, the, the normal Americans, their views are of value, you know, and all that kind of stuff, like that is such a skewed, weird sample that it's like reading the comment section on a website, you, gotta, you know, buyer beware kind of thing. But if it's filtered so that it's actual <laughs> just reporters from Fox, CNN, Washington Post, commentary, you know, National Review, mm-hmm. it makes it easier for me to sort of stay up on things. And that is gone. I mean, it's just flatly gone. Because mm. like, um, and also I just think the, the, the only place where I'd push back in any meaningful way, though, is 
Uh, I mean, we could debate the specific Twitter file stuff. And again, that's another one of these things that I so disliked so many of the people who were dismissing it entirely. And also the people who were saying that this was the, the Pentagon Papers. It was just like, I, I'm going to let these people have that yes, argument. Both wrong. <laughs> yeah. And like just someone later will write a piece that says, here's what this side got right. And here's what this side got wrong. And here's what this side got right. And then what that side got wrong. And, and I'll read that and then I'll know. And I'm like, I don't need to know right now what to think of the Twitter file stuff. The thing that I, I, I will push back on a little bit is, yes, I agree that, that pulling back the veil on the, the national security establishment and the, the, the elite, whatever, blah, 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 um, was useful and, and salutary and sort of like sunshine and disinfectant and all that stuff. Um, even though like it's not a clear story of one left or right. I mean, the Trump administration, the Trump people tried to bully Twitter into not running things too, right? You know, so like it's not all lovers of First Amendment versus, you know, statists. Um, but I think Twitter still has that problem. I mean, yeah, now we know more about what the algorithm does, but the, the algorithm is still not great. And like if the for you column sends me stuff that I don't want to see and uh, the mm. I find it and I'm not alone on that. I mean, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams just tweeted about this last week about how it is really difficult for me to see the tweets of the people I follow. And I follow those people for a reason. There's some weird stuff going on where like they this mm -hmm. desire to sort of keep people angry and engaged and, and churn the you know, the dopamine out there, that's still there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm, I, my basic view on Twitter from the beginning was it would be better if Twitter sort of became like Craigslist or Wikipedia, one of these things that decided to get out of the chasing the 10x valuation thing. Because chasing that valuation, mm -hmm. I mean, like here I am being anti-capitalist, but like chasing that valuation often ruins some products. And, um, and Twitter was one of them. Every time they tried to come up with some way to be valued like Facebook, they made it worse. And then Musk comes along and he's smarter about making money off of the thing. But the problem is still, this is just not a website that lends itself to really robust monetization to provide the service that at least I want out of it. Um, I don't want to do my online shopping through it. I don't want to do all these things that he wants to make it do. You know, I want to post videos of my dogs and talk to people I know and follow figure out what like 3000 people in journalism and politics think about something. And, and other than that, you know, there's, there are other sites for, for all that stuff. That makes sense. That's a good point. I mean, do you remember, you remember when, uh, there were, there was this weird, uh, effort to let you buy what you saw your characters on TV shows wearing. Remember when yeah, yeah, that was yeah, yeah. this first effort to kind of interface shopping on TV? I mean, sorry, that like I'm prehistoric. So like pre-internet even, yeah. this idea that you could buy what you see on TV. And it was a complete disaster because of course it takes you out of uh, the fantasy you're enjoying by right. watching a f fictional characters on Melrose Place catfight. You're like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's fun. I don't want to buy her. I don't want to buy Heather Locklear's shoes. No, 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 no. That, that disrupts the, the, the mode I'm in. And I, and I can see that with Twitter. Twitter really was unusual. And, and I'll be curious to see if like Substack's notes and these other, these other platforms trying to do Twitter like things have more or less success. Um, but the idea of everybody having this kind of online, uh, transparent public conversation, that's, that's not invaluable. And, and, 
I think it's valuable in part because it often exposes, certainly among our political class and definitely among our media class, people show themselves in a way that they, I'm sure many of their bosses and certainly a lot of voters wish they wouldn't. It's it's quite revealing of people. And I think in a way that that is a, is a public service. So if you're actually being denied access to the people who's whose behavior and thoughts and writing you want to follow, that that's bad. That that means something's not working on the platform. I have a philosophical question for you that this raises. So, uh, and and I think we are both mm. um, uh, sincerely, but even if we weren't sincere about it, we would we would not admit it. Um, uh, parishioners in the Church of Uvalovin, right? And um, uh, and Uval's whole whole you know institutions as molds versus institutions as platforms thing, right? Um, which is obviously on the bingo card of, of, of this podcast and then probably the commentary podcast too. Um, the more obscure yes. on the commentary. should be on everyone's bingo card. I it, it really should. Everyone should have that on their bingo card. It should card. be on the bingo card of your soul. And um, that, that said, obviously I agree with you, right? Because you were sort of agreeing with me. So I agree with your agreement with, of agreeing with me. Uh, <laughs> that there's a utility in figuring out of seeing the real, the real conversation that undermines the public facade, right? And so when you see New York Times reporters mm-hmm. showing their real selves, and surprise, mm-hmm. they're as liberal as conservatives were claiming for years, and um, and as and you know, it's sort of like it's sort of like you know when. New York Times. New York Times used to give reporters after thirty years in the business as being a reporter. It was like if you're really great at it, they gave you the sinecure thing of being a columnist, which is a terrible idea because they're different skill sets. But um, and they, and many of these columnists proved me right. And Bob Herbert and what's his face Keller and all these. <laughs> I forgot but, about Bob Herbert. Yeah, he yeah, was a very sweet guy, and he was like all that, but he like just wasn't a great columnist. And um, uh, but like the, and it turns out that when they were reporters, everyone was saying, what makes you think they're liberal? There's no evidence that they're biased. There's no evidence that, you know, and then they become columnists and they express their opinions openly and like, behold, they're all liberals. Or like Jay Carney, <laughs> you know, who was for years accused by people like me of being, you know, a, a biased liberal reporter. I'm not saying he was a bad reporter. I'm just saying he's like part of the liberal conventional wisdom of journalism. And then all of a sudden he becomes a spokesperson for Biden and then for Obama and lo and behold, he's exactly the person we'd said he was, which they all took offense at, you know, whatever. So like Twitter accelerated that process because now they were being their real selves in real time rather than at a different stage of their career. The question is, and this is the, the philosophical sociological question, is does Twitter simply reveal that or does Twitter ex- make that problem worse, right? Is like the, having the mm-hmm. opportunities to use one, let's put it this way. If you have no opportunities to use your institution as a platform, you're not going to use your institution as a platform. You're going to have the desire to, but it, you know, like 14th century monks really didn't use their monasteries as soapboxes because what were you going to do? Right. You know, and Twitter and all of these other, you know, uh, Substack on down, you know, all of these other, you know, platforms give people the opportunity to accrue personal followings at the, at the detriment of the institution that they work for. And, and so I guess the question is, is like, it's a chicken or the egg thing, right? Do you think, but for these things, we would have stronger institutions or were these institutions 
a mess because they had already taken in people like this from the beginning and they were just look, they're going to look for their opportunities no matter what. So I would say it's, it's, unfortunately, I'm going to, uh, the, the more negative view here when it comes to social media, I think, I think some of these institutions, let's say Congress as an example, some of these were already in a form of crisis. Some, they'd always had people who were, who were intent on promoting themselves versus, versus being part of the institution. But what, Twitter and other social media platforms created was a was an audience of such size and scale and instant responsiveness that the institution ceased to matter to them in the pursuit of attention. And so my favorite example of this is always AOC. She uses these social media platforms extremely well. She has lots of young followers who believe everything that comes out of her mouth. So what happens when she's caught out as she often is in telling just Big lies all the time. I mean, forget the I'm pretending to be handcuffed look, which was ridiculous. But she often just spouts off things that sound like facts that are completely untrue. She'll be called to account uh, by you know fact checkers, by reporters. who will say, you know, that's not true. She said this. It's actually this. So what does she do? She goes straight back to those social media platforms, doubles down and says, no, I'm right. I'm right. And you know what? I don't think a lot of her, uh, the people paying attention to her on social media, take the time to, to look into it. So the attention, the, the the amount of attention people have to actually determine whether the person in, in an institution is telling the truth has shrunk uh, dramatically. And what these platforms do is encourage people not to bother to take the time to look deeply into these questions. It says, I have an instant response for you. It instantly aligns you with this tribe, which, which you know, is your, it, it will satisfy all your other priors too. And you'll just feel really comfortable here in this instantly angry home who's either for AOC or against AOC. And that's what a lot of people choose to do. Meanwhile, you know, the idea of having some sort of standard of truth or information that you can feel you can trust that is uncorrupted by, by that process wanes. And that is bad for democracy. And I think without sort of instantaneous social media uh, debates blowing up and, and crossing people's timelines, you would perhaps have uh, less polarization in that regard. So I, I mean, I think they're a net negative for democracy, mm-hmm. honestly. And, and a lot of the promises of what these platforms would do overseas, you know, the, the Arab Spring, they have not, the state very quickly figured out how to weaponize them against the people who are fighting for freedom. I mean, these all, all the promises made in terms of how it was going to create this great global conversation have proven false. So in that sense, yeah, I think I think Yuval's argument is absolutely spot on, definitely applies to social media. And um, whatever transparency it gives us, the cost is far greater to our to the integrity of the institutions it undermines. And I, I, Congress in particular, I would look at as an example of that. The way the performative aspect of so much of our politics now is geared precisely to the audience on social media rather than to one's constituents one's voters. And and that's not good. Yeah. I mean, and where, you know, I mean, that point applies to your earlier point about why the Twitter files was, you know, the, that transparency. I, I think the way you square this, the circle there is that Twitter didn't have integrity to begin with. So it kind of doesn't matter. Um, but, right. Um, right. <laughs> but I mean, this is one of these things that I, I came to realize it was one of these epiphanies that um, uh, kind of changes the way you think about some sort of basic things is that transparency is actually bad. I shouldn't say that. Transparency can be bad, right? Uh, which is a more subtle point. Transparency it can, can also be unintended consequences. Right. Transparency yeah. can also be very, very good. I don't. I don't want. I should be careful about this. But like, there was this 
there's this notion that sort of, you know, if I was going to rewrite tyranny of cliches, you know, this sort of sunlight is the best disinfectant is one of these problematic sort of things because it, it, it sends you on a path, you know, as, as your former colleague Noah Rothman liked to say every 12 minutes, it gives you permission structure to do certain things, right? And yes. <laughs> um, let's put it this way. You cannot negotiate um, a fix to entitlements in public. Because the stakeholders that you have to throw under the bus in whole or in part that make a compromise possible, if they're watching you do it in real time on C-SPAN, you can't do it, right? Yeah, it's it just, literally it, grandma. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can't have <laughs> like you can't have a negotiation in public um, because you are by definition going to uh, tell people who are counting on you to stay firm that actually your commitment to them is negotiable, and. Um, and that's true, like, that's true of an enormous, like, imagine how terrible it would be. People who hate, hate hearing this point. It's really kind of interesting, the cognitive pain it causes some people to hear this point. So I always have to ask, okay, like, imagine, so do you think it would be good if confessionals were televised? Like at the at, at Catholic church? How about jury deliberations? How would that be for democracy if jury deliberations were on TV? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I think is sort of fascinating about the history of the French Revolution versus the American Revolution, I've made this point before, is that one of the reasons why the re French Revolution went off the rails is that all of these public meetings about what to do were in public. And so you had drunk Frenchmen cheering on the most extreme people, the AOCs who played to the mob, right. got cheered, and right. everyone else who was like, well, you know, we must, you know, these are not our enemies, these are fellow Frenchmen, they got booed. And so it created this sort of, you know, path. And I think Twitter is a version of that, where it is seeing how people think about things in the moment they get the information in real time is not great for a deliberative democracy because it takes the deliberation out of it. It's also not to get existential here at the end of the conversation, but it's also not necessarily good for the human soul to constantly expose the inner workings of one's life. Look, we all need a backstage. We all need a private moment to, to work things out. We all have moments of bad behavior. So these platforms also ex take a single instance and extrapolate from that to someone's whole life. And it leads to people's lives being destroyed when they've just made a stupid mistake. So I think existentially, it also erodes a kind of... Um, something deeply human about ourselves, which is that we need private spaces in order to flourish, just as we need public spaces that are that are well functioning for a democracy to flourish. So in that sense, it's also somewhat pernicious. On that note, Christine Rosen, thank you so much for coming back to The Remnant. Um, always love having you. Thank you. Okay, so Christine Rosen has left the studio. Um, always great to talk to her, you know, as I often say. I'm just a, I'm kind of a, a weird super fan of Christine's and have been for a very, very long time. Um, I don't know why that has to be weird. It just, it's just true. Um, and uh, again, apologies to John Ward for holding off on, on releasing our conversation until this week. Um, uh, but, you know, such is, such are the wages of the fast paced and, and hurly burly world of, of, uh, elite podcasting that these things happen from time to time. Um, looking forward to uh, the May one event again. We've hit fire marshal, no one else can come kind of level. Um, but it'll be uh, particularly interesting, I think, um, in the wake of the Fox settlement. 
to talk with uh, Brother Starwalt and, and Steve Hayes about all of this stuff. Also, um, I want to remind you that, you know, we are slowly building up our uh, multimedia globe-spanning empire. Um, and so you should check out our fledgling efforts on uh, our YouTube channel, uh, which is called Dispatch Podcasts. And you can just search for Dispatch Podcasts in YouTube and it will take you there and you'll see clips from Dispatch Live, from uh, The Remnant, other podcasts, as well as in, down the road, you know, various events and whatnot. And um, uh, it's going gangbusters already. And uh, that's all I got. So um, I want to say thanks again to Christine for coming on board. You know, I got to get Abe Greenwald on here. He's the one commentary podcast guy that I've never had on. Um, uh, we are going to have um, Matt Continetti on in a little bit to coincide with the, pub the paperback publication of his book, The Right, and maybe finish our conversation from the last time he was on. And uh, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>